0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ezekiel 19, verse 1 says, "Move. Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. So this chapter is a lamentation. Remember we went through the book of Lamentations. What is a lamentation? It literally means a funeral song or a tune, kind of like a dirge, a funeral dirge. It's basically expressing mourning in commemoration of the dead. And uh, so chapter 19 is a funeral song expressing mourning over the princes, or the demise, I should say, of the princes of Israel. And uh, those would be the line of kings that descended from, from King David. And so that's what this chapter is. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not a cheery chapter. And yet I think the Lord has something that He wants each of us to, to take from that this morning. Um, chapter 19 is an allegory. Um, remember chapter 17 with the eagle and the branch and the vine? It was an allegory, which is basically a fictional story meant to illustrate a principle or a truth. Chapter 19 is also written in an allegory. So it's a, it's a funeral song and a funeral allegory, I guess, is what you, what you would say or how you would describe it. And so verse 2, chapter nineteen says, What is your mother? A lioness. She laid down among the lions, among the young lions she nourished her cubs. And so in this allegory, we have this lioness, a mother lioness. Or, well, that would be a lioness, I guess. But um, it's basically what this allegory is referring to is the tribe of Judah. Because if you go through the scriptures, um, the tribe of Judah, all the way back to Jacob's blessing of his son named Judah in Genesis forty uh, 49, nine nine. All the way through, Judah has been depicted as a lion in Scriptures. And so this is speaking about the tribe of Judah. And of course, the tribe of Judah is who King David was from, the tribe of Judah. So the lines of kings descended from Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. And so we're talking here about Judah, the nation Judah. Verse 3, "'She brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey, and he devoured men.' Now, when you hear about the term, or you hear the term lion, maybe depending on what generation you grew up in, your mind, maybe uh, all of a sudden you start thinking about, you know, the Lion King. You know, what was, I don't remember the name of the king, Simba? Was it the name of the, no, whatever. Um, someone said it. Mufasa, there we go. Maybe your mind right away thinks about Mufasa, you know, and you start hearing the songs, the music from Lion King playing in your head, or, or if you're like in my generation, I grew up with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I remember reading them and as a kid, and and uh, and so maybe you think of Aslan, Aslan, the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. But in any case, when you hear about a lion, you know, a lot of times you think about the king of the beasts, right? The king of the jungle. And uh, and for me, anyways, I start thinking about royalty and nobility and uh, regality. And, and And, you know, that's probably your first image, I would think, about a lion. But in this chapter, this lion is being described or depicted as a wild and untamed lion whose nature is ferocious and is being described as catching prey and devouring men. And so um, this is speaking about the kings descended from the line of Judah. And except for a few of the kings of Judah, many of the kings of Judah were evil. And when the kings of Judah... Lost their sense of divinity. And what I mean by that, by losing their sense of divinity, is that they lost their sense that God had placed them in this position to be king over Israel, and that God had appointed them, and that they were subject to God. When they lost that sense of their divinity, they lost their humanity. And you know, you can look through history, you can look at uh, the, the, the communist movement, you can look at the Nazi movement, you can look at all these different movements where they tried to erase God from their, whatever their philosophy was, and they started doing the most inhumane things to people because they lost their humanity. And a lot of these kings, they lost their sense that God had appointed them and they lost their sense of humanity and they lost their fear of God. And when people lose their fear of God, they lose their regard for fellow men. And that's what the kings did. And and so a lot of them took advantage of the kings. Uh, many commentators, myself, I'm not a commentator, but myself uh, included, um, believe that this is referring to the king. This particular line is referring to Jehoahaz, who was um, also known as Shalem in the Bible. Uh, he's described in Second Kings chapter 23. Shalem, or, Jeho- or Jehoahaz, was one of the sons of Josiah. Now Josiah was a good king of Judah. And Josiah had been killed in battle against Pharaoh Nico of Egypt at Megiddo. Have you ever heard the term Megiddo? Um, there's a lot of battles that have been fought in Megiddo. It's the plains of Megiddo. And uh, if, if that sounds kind of familiar to you, it's because that is the place that's known, also known in the book of Revelation as Armageddon, where the final battle will be fought. Um, so anyways, Josiah was killed in Megiddo and then the people then appointed his son Jehoahaz as king in his stead. Well, what kind of a king was Jehoahaz? God's assessment of Jehoahaz was in second uh, second kings chapter 23 and he says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And what we mean by fathers was his ancestors. Some of his ancestors were one of the most wicked kings of Judah. Among them were Ammon and Manasseh, very, very wicked kings. Listen to Jeremiah 22, verse 11. This is God's message or God's prophecy to Jehoahaz or Shalom. It says for thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of his, uh, instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here any more, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and they shall see this land no more. and then listen to this: woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice. This is speaking about Shalem. Woe, uh, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's uh, services without wages and gives him nothing for his work. In other words, he took advantage of people. Who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling with cedar and painting it with vermilion. It speaks of his selfishness and his pride. And then God says through Jeremiah, Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord? Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. And so this is describing Shalom, this young lion who was devouring men, who was catching prey. Because of Jehoahaz's wickedness, God removed him from reigning over Judah. Verse 4, The nations also heard of him. He was trapped in their pit, and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. And we know from history, Pharaoh Necho took Jehoahaz prisoner to Egypt. And at that point, he imposed a tribute on the nation or a tax on the nation of Judah. And then he appointed another one of Josiah's sons, Eliakim, to be a king in Jehoahaz's place. And it was kind of like a puppet king, basically. Look at verse 5 of Ezekiel 19. When she saw that she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. So this is another cub that's made a young lion. Now this next young lion in this allegory, it could be one of three kings. It could have been Jehoiakim, who was the one that was just appointed. Or it could be Jehoiachin, or it could be Zedekiah. These were the last three kings of Judah, and all three of them were eventually eventually forcibly taken out of Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. And so in this allegory, we'll see this. It it could be speaking of any one of them. Uh, Verse 6, He roved among the lions and became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. Now if you look at verse 6 and you back up a little bit, it's the same description of this lion. Now many commentators think it is describing Jehoiakim. Because not only did this king Jehoiakim do the same wicked things his brother had done, as described in verse 6, but he went even further, as we'll see here in verse 7. He knew their desolate places and laid waste their cities. The land with its fullness was desolated by the noise of his roaring. This king, whoever he was, was so wicked that his wickedness caused the desolation of the nation. It says, Everyone you know everyone basically they left because of the fear of his roaring in other words um you know his threatenings i don't know about you but when i was reading this i was like it was like i could take the newspaper and this chapter and go wow it's like seems like we're living in the same kind of a situation where our land because of wicked leadership is being desolated and destroyed and, and you know i you know not to get into a political thing, but you know it's interesting to me that right now the party that's in power, if you if you voice your you know, there's been people that have stood up against the policies of of this leadership that's in place now, and uh, it's interesting that somehow coincidentally now they're on the radar of the IRS or they're being you know the Justice Department is is in, in investigating it for something, and it's like it seems like. They're trying to stifle any kind of opposition. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it seems like it's that way. So I'm reading this, and I'm reading like Fox News, and I'm going, wow, it looks like we're kind of in the same kind of a situation. Could be. Well, anyways, this king, the things that he did, not only was he wicked king, taking advantage of people, but because of his policies and because of what he's doing, the land was being desolated by him, laid waste by him. Verse eight. Then the nations set against him from the provinces on every side and spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit, and they put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. Listen to this description in Second Kings twenty-four um, of uh, Jehoiakim it's in verse 1 of chapter 24 second kings in his days speaking of the days uh, of Jehoiakim in his days Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came up uh, and Jeho- Jehoiakim became his vassal for 3 years Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. So in other words, the the neighboring surrounding nations. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. Now listen to this prophecy in Jeremiah 22 verse 18 regarding Jehoiakim. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey and dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Pretty severe. Now, the rest of this chapter now focuses in on the nation of Judah as a whole we've been up until now we've been talking about the kings or the princes of Judah but now we're going to see that the people were just as corrupt as their leaders you know it would be convenient to place the responsibility for all the bad stuff that's going on in our nation on our wicked leaders or that wicked party or whatever you want to say you know you know it'd be easy to to Force blame or say, you know, it's because of their stuff that this nation's the way it is. But, you know, in reality, although it doesn't seem like it, we have a representative government here in the United States. And the the leaders that are in place, they're really a reflection of our culture, of our society. I really believe that. You may not have voted for who's in office today, but he's a reflection of our society as a whole. And so, you know, we don't escape that same condemnation. We've, we've allowed things to get to the way they've been. So, concerning the nation of Judah, verse 10. Your mother was like a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. Now, not only is Judah described as a lion in Scripture, but Judah and Israel are also described as a grapevine in Scripture and a fig tree. There's other, there's other uh, symbolisms of Judah and Israel. But Judah and Israel have also been depicted as a grapevine In Scripture, and just like this grapevine had been planted in fertile and well-watered ground, so God had taken the nation of Israel and abundantly blessed her as a nation. Judah, the nation, because Judah split off from Israel and Judah, you know, they split off, the ten northern tribes from the two and a half southern tribes. She couldn't blame her... uh, environment because of her wickedness, you know, it just because of the way things are, it's the, you know, it's the, the age that we're living in, or it's the way I was raised or anything, they couldn't blame it on, God had, on, on, on their environment, God had blessed the nation of Israel, God had provided everything she needed, God said, if you, if you as a people follow me and obey my commandments, man, you're never going to be, a, a, you're never going to have to, you know, borrow from other nations, You're never going to have nations come and attack you. You're going to be, you know, standing strong and everything. God had blessed them. Verse 11, She had strong branches for scepters of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches and was seen in her height amid the dense foliage. Strong branches for scepters of rulers. What does that mean? Well, a scepter literally means a branch or a staff and really what we're talking about here is something that a king would hold in his hand, uh, in his right hand probably, and it would be a symbol of power and authority. Maybe you've seen some pictures of kings, you know, and they've got the robe and the crown and everything, and they're holding a, a staff or a, or a rod. It's known as a scepter. It just It's just a symbol of their ruling, a symbol of their power and their authority. Well, there were some strong branches of kings in the past, some strong leaders in Judah. David was the strongest, of course, Solomon to some extent, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. They had all generally set good examples of righteous, just, and godly leadership. But what a sad contrast to these later kings here, towards the end, the sons of Josiah. Um, You know, those other kings who were... Godly kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Solomon and and David, they had a reputation uh, as godly kings, and it was actually recognized beyond their own kingdom. The other nations recognized the godliness of them, but these kings, their reputation was just in the garbage because of the way they lived, because of their wickedness. Verse 12, But she was plucked up in fury, she was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Listen to Psalm 68, verse 6. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Because of the rebelliousness of the nation of Judah and and their rulers they were removed from that place of god's blessing and they found themselves in a harsh desolate place a place where there was no spiritual water to to revive them and to refresh them and you know sin does that to us it separates us from god from whom you know the bible says all blessings flow from god and sin separates us from god and it separates us from his blessings Verse 14, Fire has come out from a rod of her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. This is such a, a sad commentary on the royal line of David. They started out well. They started out, you know, godly kings, and but they didn't finish well. It didn't have to be this way, of course. God had provided strong principles for the kings of Israel to live and to govern successfully by. He had told them how, you know, he said, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. You, you know, you'll live a long life. You'll be godly kings. Let me ask you this rhetorically this morning. Do you want God's blessings in your life today? These principles that we're going to look at here in a moment... That God had given for the kings of Judah, or kings of Israel, I should say, those same principles apply to you and I. You want God's blessings in your life today? Listen to these principles. And so, for that, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Interesting about Deuteronomy 17, this was written by God through Moses back when the nation of Israel was just becoming a nation, they were still in the wilderness. They hadn't even come into the promised land yet. And God foreseeing their future, knowing that eventually they would want to have kings like all the nations around them. They wouldn't want to be, you know, just... They were a theocracy where basically a theocracy means, you know, we're a democracy, right? The ruling of the people. Um, But they were a theocracy where God led the nation of Israel. But they didn't like that. They liked all the other nations that had kings. And they went, we want to be like the the nations around us. And God knew that they would be like that or that their hearts would be drawn that way. And so God beforehand says, you're going to do this. But once you have kings, this is how the king should live. So, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, "...when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother." So first of all, God said, this king, you know, you're not going to just democratically elect this king. I'm going to appoint the king. Don't depend on man. God's going to appoint him. I'll appoint him. But then listen to these instructions. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Multiplying horses, what, what was God trying to communicate to those kings that would eventually come into power? The king was not to rely on military strength. The horse represented military strength, power, ability to, to fight battles. A horse, uh, so military strength. And so um, he was not to rely on military strength or the things of this world for his strength. He was to rely solely on God. Now, if we were to take that and we were to apply that to our lives today, do we rely on horses? You might say, "Well, okay, wait a minute. You know, I don't military strength. What, what, what's the deal here? How do, you, how can you apply that?" Well, think about it. The whole thing behind the military strength was basically not trusting God. It's basically, basically, saying, "Okay, um, I don't know that God can help me in this situation, so I'm going to put these things into place so that when trouble comes." I can handle it. I can take care of it on my own. Now, how can how can, does that apply to you and I? I think today, for us, I think sometimes our bank accounts and our savings and investments are those horses that we multiply and that we're relying on. Now, God didn't say you can't have horses to the kings of Israel. He just said, don't multiply them or don't go to Egypt for them. Don't go back to the ways of the world where you had to look out for yourself because no one else would. So let me ask you this again: This is rhetorically a rhetoric question, I should say. Is God the Lord of your finances this morning? Do you give of your first fruits to the Lord? And I'm talking about tithing. And you know, I bet you if I were to sit down and I don't know who does what, but if I if I were to sit down with you and say, you know, do you tithe? And you're Comment to me might be, well, I can't afford to do that right now. Can I encourage you in this? Can I encourage you to take a step of faith and trust the Lord to take care of your financial needs? You know, in the Bible, putting the Lord... God to the test is usually not a good thing. You remember, uh, uh, who was the guy that set the fleece out? It was Gideon. Gideon, remember he set the fleece out and, you know, uh, to see if it, it was God's will. God told him something. He said, well, I'm not sure if that's your will, God. I'm going to test you. And so I'll, I'll put this fleece out, you know, make the ground all dry around it and, and have the fleece wet. And God did it. And he says, okay, well, let's do it the other way around. Let's let's make, you know, everything wet but or the fleece wet, but everything else dry. And, and God let it do it. And today, it's funny. Sometimes people you know, ask him, you know, are you you know, they'll say, you know, I'm not sure if this is God's will, but I'm going to put a fleece out. And it sounds like such a spiritual thing. I'm going to put a fleece out. But, you know, in the Bible, it's actually not a good thing to test God and to say, you know, I'm not really sure if this is your will, God, but I'm going to just see if this is your will. Putting the Lord God to the test is usually not a good thing, but there is one place in Scripture where God tells his people, test me, try me out. Check this out. Put it to the test. See if it works. Malachi 3.10, he says this, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. So, you know, do we rely on horses? Deuteronomy 17 continues, Neither, and speaking of this king, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Maybe we go. Well, I can see the application there. You know, don't and the bigamy is not good, right? Um, well, what's the deal here? This king was to be a one-woman man. His family life was to be in adherence to God's God's will. Excuse me, God's law. Now, there was one king that multiplied many wives, right? Solomon. Solomon multiplied many wives he went against this commandment of God and it turned out in his old age which is I think is significant in his old age those foreign wives that he married they turned his heart away from the Lord a life lived in compromise if you're living in a if you're compromising your your values if you're Compromising, you know, uh, if, if you're kind of flirting with sin in your life right now, there's compromise in your life. It may not have, and it probably won't have immediate ramifications. You can probably get away with it for a while, but over a period of time, it'll always have a ramification. It'll always have a consequence. A little bit of, con- little bit of, uh, of uh, um, a little bit of, of a little bit of, excuse me, uh, compromise now. It'll have a consequence eventually. You know, these relationships are what led Solomon astray, and and we are not to allow personal relationships to cause us to compromise our relationship with God. And that can happen. The Bible says, in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good values. Good habits, I should say. Evil company corrupts good habits. And so, you you know, be careful who you, we're, we're to be in the world, you know, we're not to be of the world, we're to be in the world. Um, I would hope that, you know, we have unbelieving friends that we're at least ministering to or witnessing to or we're, you know, we're interacting with the world and the culture around us. Um, but be careful where you get advice from. Be careful who you, the majority of the time you spend fellowshipping with because they can drag you down. They'll never bring you up. It's, it's interesting. You might think, you know, I think I'll be a, you know, I'll be this godly influence among my Christian friends and or my unsafe friends. And you know, sometimes, uh, a lot of times, I think they tend to take you down <laughs> rather than you bring them up. And so, just a, a word of caution: um, don't let relationships get in the way of your relationship with the Lord. Another principle here. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. You know he was not supposed to be a lover of money. He was not to be influenced by campaign contributions or bribery, you know. He wasn't to be a lover of money. Jesus wrote in Luke sixteen, verse thirteen, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is another word for money. And then Deuteronomy 17 continues, Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and to be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children, in the midst of Israel." So one of God's commandments to the kings, you're to take the copy of this law, you're to write down the words of this law, and you're to have it with you, and you're to read it daily. Because if you read it daily, you're gonna, you know, and live by it, it's going to preserve you from sin, it's going gonna, it's gonna to guide you in all the things that you do. And so I think an obvious application for us today are we reading and meditating on God's word daily. Are we living by it? You know, are you basing every decision and choice you make based on, you might say, well, you know what, God's Word, you know, it doesn't tell me specifically about this or that. Are you living by the principles and the precepts in God's Word? You know, someone once said, sin will keep you from reading this book, the Bible, but reading this Bible or this book will keep you from sin. And it's such a truth, I think, for all of us. Psalm one nineteen nine says this, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God said, if you're going to reign, if you're going to rule, man, you need to have my word. You need to be living by it. You need to be reading it daily. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we doing that? Are we living by that? Are we reading God's word and, and making decisions and living by it daily? If the kings of Judah had followed these principles, they would have governed justly and righteously. They would have stayed humble and not become prideful or power-hungry. They wouldn't have turned aside from God's law. They would have been constant, It would have been constantly on their hearts and on their minds. So God had provided everything that they needed to do to be successful. And God has provided the same for you and I to live a successful Christian life. Sadly, the kings of Judah and Israel did just the opposite. And it wasn't too many generations after Solomon. In fact, the next generation, Rehoboam, you know, Rehoboam started listening to the advice of these young leaders instead of the older leaders that had some wisdom and they had been around his father. He listened to the younger counselors and they said, you know, do this, Be, be hard on the people. And so Rehoboam did. And of course, the nation split at that point. And it just progressively got worse and worse and worse. There was a few times when a few like Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat and different kings turned to the Lord. And they were godly kings. But generally, there was just a complete uh, you know, downward trend in the lines of the tribe of, of Judah, the kings of, of the line of David, I should of the tribe of Judah. And it got to the point where the temple was no longer in use. It got that far god 's people it got to the point where they didn 't even go to the temple. the scriptures had disappeared from public conscience they didn 't even have god 's law anymore that they neglected it to the point where it was gone. the knowledge of God was in short supply and then one time by divine coincidence and I, I love using that term divine coincidence because there is no divine you know there is no coincidences there divine appointments by divine appointment Josiah. He's, you know, he, he's wanting to restore the temple, so he sent in some workers to restore the temple. And some workers were in there, and they were like, oh, look at these old scrolls. And, and one of the, they showed them to the priest, and the priest opened the scroll, and it was God's law. And they hadn't read it for ages, for years. In his generation, nobody had read it. And they said, well, we better show the king this. And so they brought it to Josiah. And Josiah, when he read the scroll... He literally, he just tore his clothes in agony and he repented for himself and for the sins of the people. And he turned around and he led a great reform in the land. Josiah lived in a culture very much like you and I are living in today. Because today, steadily, God's word is being, you know, removed, removed from the public side, removed from government. You know, uh, I was just reading. Uh, there was a, some some uh, college, I think it's in Wisconsin, where uh, some atheists, you know, they were complaining that these hotels, because they're tied with some university, that they have Bible, Gideon Bibles in the hotel rooms, and so they're offended. And so the the universities, wanting to be politically correct, apologized and removed the Bibles. And now they're behind the counter, just kind of like, you know, now like the, the girly magazines, behind the counter, you know, you have to ask for it. So, you need a Bible? Well, here, we'll put it in a brown wrapper and give it to you, you know. That whole mentality, that's what's happening in our culture today, folks. The Bible, God's Word, is being erased from the public consciousness. It, you, you know, I used to think, well, you know, you could witness to a Christian or to a, to any person in the United States, and they you know they know about Jesus. They know it. it's not like that anymore. This generation, they are they're ignorant about God, they're ignorant about Jesus Christ. We live in a culture very much the same today. There was great wickedness in Josiah's culture, and I think it goes without saying we live in a culture of great wickedness. Parental influence. And godly examples were terrible. Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather, and Ammon was his father. Those two guys were among the most wicked kings of Judah. It was like they had they had just gone full out, they were like the worst of the worst. So bad influence, bad parental influences. You look at today, look at the look at the kids that are being raised up and the parents that are absent from people's, you know, all these single parent families and families where, you know, kids are just they're just thrown to the wolves, basically, in our society. Ignorance of the Bible widespread. But God got a hold of Josiah. Josiah read the words, man, he, he just he just tore his clothes, he wept, and he did something about it. He turned around, and and he started reforms in the land. Now it was, you know, his heart was reformed, and he was leading reforms, but the people were still, they were, you know, kind of slow in coming around. In fact, they didn't really come around, and that's why God still judged them, and they went into captivity. But Josiah himself, God looked at his heart. And listen to this in Second Kings 23, verse 25. This is God's assessment of Josiah. It says, Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. What did God focus on on Josiah? How he turned to the Lord how he completely turned around wholeheartedly. I mean, this guy was radically saved. You know, he's like full-on for God. Jesus is looking, God's looking for people that are full-on for Jesus this morning, who are radically saved, who wholeheartedly turn and follow God. That's, That's what God notices. Sadly, Josiah's descendants including Kings Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, they didn't follow in Josiah's footsteps, but they reverted back to the wickedness before the kings of Israel. And like I said, the kings of Judah were really a reflection of the people. The nation as a whole had collectively turned their back on the Lord. And as a result of that, they found themselves in a dry and a desolate place. Where there was no water. I don't know if that describes your spiritual life today. I don't I've gone through periods where you know someone say, How are you doing with the Lord? Oh, I'm kind of in a dry place. I mean you've heard someone say that. Maybe you've even used that before. I'm kind of in a dry place right now. I'm going through a dry time. Maybe it seems like the Lord is not, you know, it's like you're not hearing from the Lord. You feel like, you know, I just I just don't see God working in my life. I mean things are just kind of uh You know, King David was on the run from Saul. He wasn't a king at the time. Saul was the king. Saul was threatened by David and so Saul was chasing David. And, and David and his men fled into the wilderness to hide. And he was being pursued by his enemy and he was hiding out in the wilderness in, a, in the dry drought, you know, dry weary land, desolate land. And he penned Psalm 63. And we're going to close with that this morning. Psalm 63. Let me read a portion of it to you. This morning, because maybe you're in a dry place this morning. And if you're in a dry place like David was, I want you to really think about this psalm. And I want you to take the psalm and maybe today, you know, go back and read it again and pray this psalm. Let this psalm be your prayer to the Lord. It says here, Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness." And my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. That last verse, my soul follows close behind you. You know, I always have this picture in my mind. We, we had a couple lab retrievers, and not too long ago we were watching uh, our son's boxer. And, uh, you know, dogs are, they're, I like dogs. I mean, they're great animals, they're great pets, and, and they love their masters. And they're never down, you know, they're always, and, and, you know, if they attach themselves to one person, they'll follow you around. Have you ever had a dog, like, right on your heels? It's just everywhere you go in the house, they go, oh, he's going that way. You know, and they follow you, and then, and then you back them, oh, you almost trip over, because they're right, I mean, it's like they're right there. It's like, can you get out of the way? I'm trying to move, you know? I, I don't know. I've, I've had that with those dogs. God wants you and I to follow that close after him, where we are just like, God, I, I need you today. And, and crying out that prayer of desperation, Lord, I need you, and, and then just following him. What's God doing today? Man, I want to be where God is. And, of course, you're not going to know where God is today if you're not in his word. I mean, God speaks to us through his word, so you got to get into the word and, and then pray it through and say, Lord, show me today how to live out this, whatever it is that you've studied, and then follow hard after God. My soul, man, it clings to you. That's what God wants this morning. And, you know, the Bible says... That God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So this isn't just a uh, you know feel good you know uh, principle of you know a belief system. You just do these things. No, God says if you diligently seek after Me, I'm going to reward you. You'll find Me. And so this morning, if you're in a dry place this morning, I want to encourage you to look at Psalm 63 prayerfully, and I want you to just, just follow hard after the Lord because He'll reward you. And God will bless your life if you if you follow these principles in Scripture. So why don't you stand up and let's go Lord in prayer.